let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can be together and learn from your word. And in keeping with this theme in Acts 4, may you grant us boldness in the gospel that we may speak your word and preach the gospel without fear. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's where we were. 418, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice, I think I said last week, they weren't threatened by the idea there was a healing. They just didn't want the gospel preached. So people saying, well, if you can't heal the sick, then then you're failing God, don't realize that The more profound issue is the preaching of the gospel. That's what led to the persecution. Now, obviously, and we'll see as we go on, they're not going to be able to listen to this and obey this because they were commanded to teach in the name of Jesus in the Great Commission. Luke 24, 47, Great Commission. And that... Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So they had began to obey this. And we know that this is an important theme in Luke Acts. Acts 1.8 says that they would begin from Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So here we have a command by Jesus to proclaim in his name repentance for forgiveness of sins. So what are these leaders saying? Don't speak or teach at all in the name. Okay? So now we got a conflict, don't we? And they're going to interpret this as whether or not they're going to obey God or man. And this will be applicable to us because it's getting harder and harder in America to preach the gospel without coming under some kind of persecution or at least rejection. But we must, we must preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is release of fiamy, release from sins. Now, I have here, and I don't remember we covered this last week, but it won't hurt to look at it, some passages about calling on the name of the Lord. Okay, if we're not going to preach in his name, how are they going to call on him about whom they have not heard? Romans 10. But we'll start with Acts 2.21 as a cross-reference. Acts 2.21, Peter preaching already before this. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So they're saying, don't preach in the name of the Lord. Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what are they saying? We don't mind lame men healed as long as they go to hell when they die. Oh, they don't say it that way. They don't think that way, but that's exactly what's going on. 
He says, okay, go ahead and heal, but don't preach in the name of Jesus. But how are they going to call on the name of the Lord if they don't ever hear about it? And if they don't, they'll be lost. And so the attack of Satan is always against the gospel. Oh, yes, it's against the gospel. Then let's look at Acts 3.16. Here it is to look at the context of Luke Acts. Acts 3.16. Apostolic preaching. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. So you see two things here. The name of Jesus and the healed lame man. They only were concerned about the one, the name of Jesus. And the faith which comes through him has given this perfect health in the presence of you all. The faith which comes through him. Acts 3.16. Did you know that faith is a gift from God? It's not just generated by human effort. It comes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Amen. We preach the name of Christ. So, boy, you can't preach the name of Jesus. Sorry, we got a problem here. We will. This morning, I got to tell you this. You know, I got up and wasn't it great getting up having lost an hour of sleep? If you're listening on the tape, it was daylight savings time. So, oh, man, I thought I was going to bed at 10. It was really 11. (laughs) Short night. Well, anyhow, I was up anyhow and had the news, uh, Fox News, actually, and they had who's on? Franklin Graham. Boy, I'm telling you, this man is bold in the gospel. And if he's on only for a short time, which he was this morning, and he was talking about radical Islam, that's what they wanted to ask him about. And boy, he's just telling things for what they are. But every time he's on, he talks about Jesus. He died. He was raised on the third day. And he talks about forgiveness of sins and faith in Christ. And he did it this morning, just that fast. They gave him a few minutes. They better be careful because, boom, all comes the gospel. <laughs> Always happens. I've seen it I don't know how many times. So I am publicly commending Franklin Graham for being bold in the gospel. In fact, they didn't try to stop him from preaching in the name of Jesus. Boldness in the gospel. My dear friends... The next slide, the PowerPoint we'll get to is about the same theme of boldness. Remember the inclusio we're working on here? And if you look through the New Testament, one of the prayers that you find is a prayer for boldness in the gospel. We should pray for each other that we'd have boldness in the gospel because the world will do anything it can to intimidate us that we might not preach in this name. You can do good deeds all day long. They don't care. But preach in the name of Jesus and you will be hated and rejected. Romans 10, 13. Whoever will 
call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can look at the context of that. It's a fantastic section about the universal call. How will they preach unless they're sent? And how will they hear, you know, unless there's a preacher? And But they haven't heard, oh, yeah, they, ha- they have. The word has gone out throughout the world. But whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no doubt about that. The name of the Lord denotes not only his authority, but his person. God is the creator of the universe. His authority, his power, his love, his compassion, his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. The name of the Lord speaks about the whole person and work of Christ. It says in Isaiah 55, 6, just to show you that this theme is in the Old Testament, seek, seek the Lord while he may be found, Call upon him while he is near. If you if today, if you hear his voice, as it says in Hebrews, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. The Lord is near when we hear the gospel preached, and when we're convicted, it's time to call on the name of the Lord. Oh yes, that's what it says. We could go through Romans 10, but I want to stay somewhat on track here. But remember this, because if we go through Acts, we're going to see again and again repentance for the forgiveness of sins preached, people calling on the name of the Lord, and the Lord adding them to the church. Are you willing today to call on the Lord who died for sins, the just for the unjust, that we might be brought to God. Verse 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Oh, yes, these were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were commissioned by Christ after his resurrection. They were sent by him, and they obediently preached, starting with Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. These religious authorities wanted to intervene and stop them from preaching in the name of Jesus. But they confronted them and said, we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Amen. Thematic in Acts is Acts 1.8. Don't forget this. It sets the stage for the entire book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice it says you shall be my witnesses. This is a legal idea from a court of law. If you call a witness in a court of law, why? What are they going to do? What's the point of a witness in a legal proceeding? 
Yeah, to testify what they've seen and heard, what they know to be true, right? So they have to testify about Jesus Christ because they're the witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And they were told that after they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit, they would be his witnesses. So he says, we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So every time there's a confrontation with civil or religious leaders or Jews or Gentiles, the apostles do their job and witness about Christ. Now, this testimony about what they've seen and heard is testimony about Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him. See, one of the confusions that happened to me not too long after I became a Christian and I, I did have some really good teaching, and to thank God for that at, at North Central Bible College. But one of the things that started to go astray really quickly was the idea that being a witness is talking about yourself. Okay, see the subtle shift? There, what does it say? So they're speaking about what? What we've seen or heard. If there was a robbery and they bring you into court because you were there when it happened they're going to ask you about what you saw and heard did the robber have a gun was the robber wearing a mask how tall was the robber how big was the robber what did he do what kind of car did he get in so what if you got called into court and to witness because of being there during a robbery, and you said, well, I had kind of a warm feeling in my heart. <laughs> I started feeling really good, and I was glad it wasn't me being robbed. <laughs> and I was glad that he didn't shoot me. Well, that's all fine, but that's not... See, that's what went astray with the entire evangelical movement. Rather than witnessing about Christ, we start witnessing about ourselves. Well, I'm happy. It's what some have called life enhancement preaching. Come to Jesus and find out what that wonderful plan is, and so on and so forth. My friends... We are to call on the name of the Lord and to call others to do the same and witness about Christ. This morning, I I commended Franklin Graham. I heard him this morning. He talked about Jesus, who he was, who he is, what he did, the resurrection, all of that. Franklin Graham didn't say anything about Franklin Graham. He talked about Christ. May God help us do that. Hold on, bring that mic to Eric. I hear nothing. Okay. I was just going to pick up on this idea of being an eyewitness. If everyone turns to Acts 21, 21, and 22, it's the same thing you were just talking about, Bob. It's one of the criteria for being an apostle. 
And you've mentioned numerous times, even in our study of Acts, the term day, where it's yeah, the divine must. must, exactly, the divine necessity. We see that in Acts one twenty two. Notice here is Peter. This is where they're casting lots to determine who's going to be the next apostle to fill Judas's spot. So Peter says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So that's his earthly ministry. He says, beginning from the baptism of John, so that would be the beginning of Jesus' ministry, until the day when he was taken up from us. So there's his ascension. That's at the three-year mark. It says, one of these men must, there's the divine necessity, become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so, so they the, had to see, had to witness the life of Christ. Amen. And then you and I have talked about this on the radio, but some would question, well, then how is Paul an apostle? Because he wasn't alive, or well, he was alive, but he wasn't a, during, there during Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, he is then personally instructed according to Galatians chapter 1. In, in, in Arabia. For three years. So he's brought up to that same standard. But this is what we can use with the Mormons who claim to have apostles or the Pope who claims to be a successor of Peter. We can say, were you an eyewitness of the resurrection? Were you personally instructed for three years by Christ? And the obvious answer is no. Well, they don't listen to them. Exactly. They're a $3 They're bill. They're false apostles. Yeah, amen. Okay. So, do you see my distinction between talking about yourself and talking about Christ? There's a huge difference. Somebody, I think Rich, you were telling me this, that you went to a baptism and everybody's talking about themselves. Yeah, that the, the big thing out there is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so the, the, the saying is, hey, that's great. I love me too. <laughs> All right, so we got that going for it. Well, see, like, go, go back to my analogy of the court of law. The judge would say, I mean, if that's what the lawyers brought in to be a witness, the prosecuting attorney, the judge would say, well, okay, you don't have anybody that actually saw what happened? We didn't bring you in here to tell, tell us how you feel. We brought you in here to testify about what really happened. And boy, that's getting into our judicial system, but I won't get into that right now. Talking about what we feel like rather than what really happened. Now, it says here that we have a conflict. We're going to listen to these religious rulers or are we going to listen to God? Now, in Romans 13... It says in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And then it goes on through verse 7, and uh, being in subjection for consciousness' sake, how civil authorities bear the sword, it talks about that we ought to pay taxes. The rulers are servants of God. Why? Because anarchy is not God's intention. The Bible says that God draws out the boundaries of the nations. Boundaries exist because there is such a thing as civil government. And throughout history, there's been certainly wars over boundaries. 
but it shows that there's some kind of ruling authority. The Bible doesn't endorse anarchy or this idea the whole world is all big one batch of hunters and gatherers and we shouldn't have any boundaries or government or police or any such thing. Well, Deuteronomy 32 explains how God providentially rules over his own universe and he uses civil authorities. And boundaries may change, but ultimately there are civil authorities. Tax is paid to those who rule over the area that we may be living in. It says in verse 7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Romans 13, 7. Now, I've read the early church fathers a lot, including Tertullian and Justin Martyr, two who wrote apologies. And one of the things they said to their Roman persecutors is that why are you persecuting us Christians? We are good citizens of your empire. Our Lord commanded us to pay taxes, says Justin Martyr and Tertullian. And so we do. Furthermore, our Lord, through his apostles, commanded us to pray for you. And so we do. We pray for you, we pay taxes to you, and we are good citizens that take care of our own business and so forth. That's what they said. So why are you persecuting us? Well, because they're doing the same thing. They're saying, no, you have to deny Christ. Well, then they've got rather clever in their arguments. And I, again, I kind of blend together in my mind, Tertullian and Justin Martyr, so excuse me if I don't get the quote perfect. But it was said, what kind of crime is it that you're accusing us of? Every other criminal, you're happy if they confess. Oh, yeah, you get a robber. Did you do it? Yes, I confess. Well, good. He says, now as Christians, we willingly confess and you want us to deny. What kind of crime is it where you're demanding denial? And so they, in a sense, were showing the Romans their hypocrisy. We will not deny Christ. We must confess him, but we will be good citizens. And I think that Tertullian and Justin Martyr and these others serve as a good example of what it means to take the teaching of our Lord seriously. And shouldn't we be the same way? Be right with you, Brian. I just thought of an illustration. I used to meet weekly with a, a Christian brother back in the 70s. And he was out without work for a long time in the he was kind of a tech guy, and he got a job with this Christian businessman. And uh, he said, good, I'm, I'm going to work for a Christian. And he kind of, he was working and working and working, and, you know, he didn't get paid. And came uh, the end of the year, and he asked for his W-2 form, and instead the guy gave him a book about why we shouldn't pay taxes that the U.S. government was illegitimate and that we shouldn't pay any taxes and if we're going to really serve God, we're not going to pay taxes. And here's this guy. 
he, my friend, who just worked for a whole year, and now he owes all this money in taxes, and all he has is a book from this guy who never withheld anything. What's wrong with that? Because it's in direct rebellion to Romans 13. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Is it righteous to not withhold taxes from your employees and then give them a book saying why not to pay taxes? Why do people claim they're a Christian businessman? How about just being a businessman and do so in a godly, honorable way, and that when all that's done, then go ahead. I'm a Christian. But Christian business means you do dirty things, you land in jail when you started a pyramid scheme. All right. We've They've done talked, that, too, in the name of Christ. Go ahead, Brian. We've talked before about how when governmental law starts to infringe on God's law, that that's where there becomes a conflict. And I guess... I want to try to say this clearly. When we see, take Canada, for example. There's certain things in Canada that they can't say from the pulpit. So apparently the uh, church leaders, if you will, they've determined that because they're shut down on free speech in certain areas of God's word, that they're just going to take it and not say anything. Well, we see in we a... Can't do it. We in, have to teach every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is in So where's the line in the sand? Where, where does okay, the Okay, there it is, right there. You right just there. got it. Okay, so you're saying then that... The, the, the leaders in Canada, that they're not standing up for God's word. Well, I have not heard about their law nor heard the sermons in Canada, so I cannot testify to that. Okay. But, but we about- will teach and preach verse by verse by verse by verse through the whole Bible. And if there's some verse the civil government doesn't like, tough. Go ahead. Say, Bob, I, I don't know the answer to this, but where in the Bible, as you look at taxes, which is always a, a touchy subject, where they could take 90% or 100% or whatever it is, uh, when you talk about paying taxes, that's one thing. And then also to take those taxes and, uh, you know, re, you know for, for abortions and different types of things that we don't, you know, believe in. Where, where is it in the Bible? I know we're supposed to give unto Caesar what's uh, Caesar's, but... Uh-huh. They could give. They could give ninety percent at certain times. They have. Well, uh, the I think here in America, we have to uh, distinguish between God's providential law and His moral law. Okay, for the government to confiscate most everybody's money or all of it, like they used to do in Russia, and then use it for evil, is violating God's moral law. That's what they're doing. And we're more than capable and willing to say that is immoral and unrighteous. Okay? But it's also God's moral law that we pay our taxes. Now, in America, by God's providence, we have the privilege of voting and of free speech and so on. I would suggest that we exercise it, okay? But I don't know that if I 
refuse to pay taxes be, and end up in jail that I'm bringing honor to the name of Christ by being a tax dodger for Jesus. I, I just, I, I, go ahead. You know, Bob, I have a, can I come up with a dictum that comes from that Acts 529 where it says we must obey God rather than men. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see taught in the scriptures is that we have to obey the governing authorities unless they prohibit us from doing something God commands. Right. Or they command us to do something God prohibits. Exactly. And that's the dividing line. So are we commanded in scripture to pay taxes? Yes. So when that fellow you were mentioning said, I'm not going to pay taxes, he's in rebellion against God. Yeah. But if the governing authorities tell me you can't preach in the name of Jesus, well, I'm commanded to preach the name of Jesus. Yeah. I'm going to obey God rather than men. And a good example of this is Daniel, the prophet. Remember, there was legislation passed in the government of his day in the Chaldeans where they said you can only honor uh, King Dar Darius, I believe is who it was at the time. You can't bow your knee to God. Immediately he goes and disobeys that. And he's doing the same thing. So again, we have to yeah, obey the good government. illustration. I've used that before. Yeah, it's a good one. In and so, yeah, that's, I think that's the dictum. We have to obey the governing authorities unless they prohibit yeah. us from doing Daniel something. Daniel was commands. a good citizen yeah. until they told him he couldn't pray. Right. Yep. And he just did it. Now, I, I totally agree. As far as how much the taxes are, call your congressman. Okay? You were free to, in what, they, what the money gets spent, there's going to be debates and disagreements. We have free speech. We can debate and disagree. But as it is, what's due is due. And I don't believe in refusing to pay taxes uh, as an American citizen. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's just keep preaching the gospel and putting it on the Internet and if the civil government says, we don't like what you're doing, they listen to this tape where we said, pay your taxes. Dear civil government, take your tax money and be happy. But leave us alone. We will preach Christ. All right. I think that's in keeping with Justin Martyr and early Christians. Don't let them say that we're rebelling just because we'd rather not obey Christ. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 16. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Here's our issue here. But do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. My dear friends, brothers and sisters, let's take that seriously. If we do evil, don't say, oh, we're being persecuted. Right? May we do good and be seen to be doing good and be good witnesses for Jesus Christ. Doing evil doesn't honor God. So that's, that's the sort of thing, reasoning about good and evil, that we have to be able to do as Christians. Right? What's good? What's evil? And then overall, it's God's providence. Two more verses here. 
Acts 4, 21 and 22. After threatening them further, what did they threaten them? Don't teach in the name of Jesus. They released them. They found no way to punish them. Why? Because the people were all giving glory to God. We'll see that this is an interaction that goes on throughout Luke Acts. The people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So we have here a theme that has already began in Luke and now is going on in Acts. Remember the two-volume work is that the people actually respond better to Christ and the apostles in the gospel than the religious leaders do. Now, this isn't unheard of, even in our day. I'm thinking of my own uh, experience growing up in a liberal church. My father was a World War II veteran and was very conservative. And he was the delegate for our church to the state convention. And when he got to this was in the 60s. And when he got to the state convention, they had these young seminarians who got on the social issues committee. And he noticed that one after another after another was pro-communist and pro-socialist and anti-Christian. These are the ministers. These are the seminary grads. And then at the same conference that my dad attended, they were lamenting the fact that the Methodist Church had lost so many million members over the last 15 or 20 years. So my dad, now he told me this story. He got the mic because there was interaction from the delegates from various churches throughout Iowa. And he got to the mic and he said, so we here have been hearing about all these people that have left our churches. And then we hear from these people that are pro-communist. He said, I come from a little church of Archer, Iowa, that has mostly farmers. And we don't want to hear pro-communist. And if this is what we're going to hear, are you shocked why people are leaving the church? And so he rebuked them. But the liberals held sway. They became the pastors of the local churches. And when I became a born-again Christian, 1971, the same pastor that was the one who didn't believe in the resurrection was still there. He was so old they didn't move him around anymore. He was in his 70s. I asked for a meeting with him. When I got back from uh, college and as a new Christian, and I told him about coming to Christ. And this ordained minister said, well, back in 1910 when I was a young lad, I tried that too. But I found out you can't know God's will And the good Lord just understands. And you just got to be a good person and do your best. That's what he told me. 
He didn't encourage me about becoming a born-again Christian. It was, it, and he, he was essentially saying, I'm getting off on the wrong foot. Well, I didn't go back to that church. And I went to where the gospel was preached. But he did go and talk to my parents and tell them your, that, about me becoming a born-again Christian. Here I was, growing up in that church, far more conservative than the preacher. My dad is a, one of the men in the church that did a lot of the work, far more conservative than the preacher. And so here we have the religious leaders being against Christ in the gospel and the people for Christ in the gospel. Oftentimes, people with an agenda that's not necessarily God's agenda like to get involved in politics and get themselves up there where they're the ones making the decision. Okay? And the common people don't go along with it. The common people aren't the Marxists and the communists. They want to just do their job, farm their farm, pay their taxes, and be good citizens. But this stuff comes spilling down on them. So they threatened them, but the people were giving glory to God. Let's look at some of the earlier cases. Well, it said the sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. He'd been 40 years lame, laying there begging at the temple, and uh, he was healed. And it was done in the name of Jesus. What are they going to say? Well, we don't want to hear about Jesus. It was just the leaders that said that because they cared about their political power. They didn't care about what was true. They didn't care about what was right. They didn't care about what was just. They cared about their own power and their own status. Does that sound familiar? Luke 19, 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men, there's our leaders, among the people were trying to destroy him. That is Jesus. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. What are you going to do? The people keep listening to Jesus. We don't like this guy. Okay, so they didn't like this. Well, what are they going to do? So they had to plot to get rid of Jesus. They couldn't tolerate him. Luke 20, starting with verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, notice our theme, gospel preaching, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Who are the enemies? The religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, elders. Boy, it happens again and again, doesn't it? I was talking about a denomination that had gone liberal in some regards already in 1880. Many had already believed that Schleiermacher and whoever these early liberals were in Germany. But now, in my lifetime, 
We have the National Association of Evangelicals, the leaders falling all over themselves trying to see what anti-Christian cause they can endorse next. Well, first we're going to have Rome, and then we're going to have Islam. And what else is there out there that's in opposition to the gospel that we can't endorse? Global warming. It's insane. Absolutely, it's insane. They have the whole populace mesmerized. They freeze and freeze and freeze and freeze, and they're told it's caused by global warming. (laughs) You wicked sinners, you got in your car and drove to work. I, I, I was getting treated for my asthma, and a lady was making small talk and you know, to make the day go quicker for treating asthmatics and started bringing up global warming. And I said, listen, you're not wrecking the globe by getting in your car and driving to work. And neither am I. I won't listen to that nonsense. Oh, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Okay, listen, moral evil is going on. And it's being endorsed by churches. Things that God condemned in the Bible. And we think it's a sin to drive to work in our car. Let's just feel guilty about all these things that we can't change. And then we can ignore the real guilt, the real sin, and the real evil. How did I get on this? Okay, go ahead, Rich. Well, this lady held up a sign. This lady held up a sign in protest. And she said, she said, kill yourself and save planet Earth. Really? Who? All right. Okay. I didn't mean to talk about global warming. I did write an article about it. CICministry.org. You can look up global warming. So the people are saying one thing and the leaders another. At Luke 22 and verse 2. And they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, and who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question, you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They reasoned among themselves. By the way, when you see that phrase in the Greek, from the Greek, that's translated reason among themselves, it's always ominous. Something bad is going on. They're conspiring. They reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to them, why didn't you not believe him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Good politician, right? Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He exposed their motivations. Luke 20 and verse 19. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, but they understand that he spoke this parable against them. Do you think he means us? Oh, yeah. But there's the people here. 
You know, isn't it interesting how a lot of these things just get repeated? I think they're grounded in the sinfulness of human nature. And we're not, don't fool ourselves, we're no different. We'll lie to ourselves and shift our own guilt. Just like Adam, the woman that thou gavest me. Okay, we, we don't want to just preach about all those others out there and how they're evil. We've got to be honest about, with ourselves. Are we siding with Christ and the gospel or do we have some agenda? I know when I got involved in politics in the early 80s and I was doing going, kind of going up the ladder just to see what the process is like, I found out that the conservatives had kingmakers with evil motives. They, they were just doing dirty, nasty deeds, thinking the ends justified the means. And it was so, I was so disgusted with it, I got out. I figured I'll just go do my job and then vote and pay taxes. It, it, it's amazing how we rationalize doing evil. And that's what I found, so I didn't get any further into it. They were, uh, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do evil in the name of the Lord. We should never do evil in the name of the Lord. Is there any other discussion? I, we've got about seven minutes. There's no use starting that. Christy, you probably could just pick all these up. We'll start next week. Yeah, or in two weeks or whatever. But uh, Eric, give Eric the mic. Bob, I just wanted you to elaborate. Um, you and I were doing radio one time, and you had mentioned something. I thought it was really important. And it, it was reminded of me when we were looking at this Luke 20, where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're in this quandary. And instead of answering Christ, they just say, we don't know. And what they're really doing is we, we you and I call it pleading the fifth. Okay, I got it. And explain how that's not yeah. an option for us. <laughs> yes. One of the things Eric and I ran and get into in recent years is when decisions are trying to be made by some people, and scripture is brought to bear on the situation. Eric had the experience of just laying out, here's the scripture, here's the evidence for what it means, here's the application that logically and necessarily follows from the scripture, here it is. And the religious leaders, evangelical people we know, oh, and they go to a different topic. And then I've run into that again too. Prove it. Here's the scripture. Oh, here's the scripture. Nothing. So I finally decided that that's what that is, is pleading the fifth about the word of God. Dear friends, do you think, turn with me to John 12, 48. I got to turn there too. John 12, 48. We've got five minutes. Let's look at this verse. And then we'll talk about the problem of pleading the fifth about the scripture. Just like these Pharisees, just go silent. Why? Well, if I'm wrong about this, that has serious consequences to me. Why don't you show me where I'm wrong? I'm willing to be corrected. I've been corrected many times, especially by my wife. (laughs) And I needed it. (laughs) Okay, John 12, 48. Jesus said, the one who rejects me and doesn't accept 
my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Eric and I were talking about this on the radio. The word Jesus said, I have spoken, will judge him on the last day. We've had some people angrily rebuking us because we did something that wasn't in keeping with creeds and councils from church history. All right? Prove to me that on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to take out the Westminster Confession and judge us. Uh, (laughs) Prove it. Jesus said his word that he's spoken to us will be our judge. He doesn't say somebody's counsel and confession will be our judge. The counsel and confession may be true in some points and may be false in others. But it's not our judge on the last day. And if we've gone through all the work to lay out what the scripture says and what it means, and we believe in the priesthood of every believer, and that you can judge that, you can challenge it. That's why we have the mic here in Sunday school. And if we're wrong, we need to change. We need to repent. Because I know I've been there knocking on the door of heaven. I thought I was going to die three different times. almost did. And I thought about what's going to happen. I thought about Christ being judge. Where am I going to stand? Because... What I'm going to get done in this life doesn't look like it's going to be anything anymore. Turned out not that way. I think that way now. I'll be judged by what Christ and his apostles have taught. And whether I obeyed it, whether I believed it, and those words will be my judge on the last day. And somebody doesn't even care because it doesn't come from their tradition, they're not going to get anywhere with me. I don't care about your tradition. I care about every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if I have traditions that are false, it's only right that somebody correct me while there's still time for me to change. And I've had to change things. And we have to be circumspect about the truth of the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to not be like the Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, who want the accolades of the people, but close our ears to the truth of your messengers, Christ and his apostles. May we listen to you. May we believe you. May we practice what you've told us. May that inform our beliefs and our practices and how we proceed in life from day to day. So that on that day, by your grace and mercy and to your glory, may it be said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. To each one of us, help us, Lord. We give you the thanks and glory in Jesus' holy name. Amen.